This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And I am still here. Uh, still here. Uh, the Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn uh, Mitch Marathon Month is over, but hey, I've got some free time. So let's put up some, uh, some more shows. And uh, today we have producer David Prater. And he, of course, worked on some of the greatest albums, well, at least in my collection. He, he worked with Stephen Piercy and Arcade. And you gotta love Arcade. And he also did the Night Ranger Feeding Off the Mojo album. This sort of black sheep of the Night Ranger catalog. And yet, if you take a, ch- a time to listen to it, it's a really good album. Anyway, um, not going to spend a lot of time doing talk-ups on this one. We're just going to sort of uh, punch in, punch out, just because why not? I can do that. It's an independent show. I have I have no rules. I can do whatever I want. So... Uh, the, the David interview is in two parts. The first seven minutes we, we started talking and then he, uh, wanted to change phones or or something like that. And so we took up the conversation again right after. So, uh, I will, uh, put those together and make it sound like one, I guess. Anyway, uh, listen, we love David. We love producers. And, uh, you know, it's fun to talk to, uh, to rock stars. But once in a while, once in a while, it's fun to talk to the people behind the music, such as a producer. So uh, here, without further ado, it is the one, the only, producer David Prater. We are speaking with uh, producer David Prater. He has, of course, worked on albums by Arcade, which features uh, Stephen Piercy, my good old buddy Stephen. Firehouse, which of course has uh, the one, the only Bill Leverty. You can't go wrong when you're working with Bill. Uh, Dream Theater and and new to my lexicon is uh, Feeding Off the Mojo by Night Ranger. So a uh, great album. So so David, let's talk about all of this because you were in a band way back uh, mid seventies, you know, mid to late seventies called Baby Grand. How do you move from being in a band and making your own albums to becoming a producer. Wow. I'll try and keep it short, but it became in 77 and 78, very, very clear to me that all of the power at that time really rested in the songwriting and the production. So I needed to transition from just being a drummer for hire and concentrate more, especially when you're working with uh, Eric Bazilian and Rob Hyman, who you probably know from the Hooters. Uh, They were in that band, Baby Grand, and the producer was Rick Church. If you just do a, you know, just a a basic search of those names, you'll, you'll see they've worked on some huge records, Eric and, and Rob wrote some hugely important songs, you know, the Cindy Lauper, She's So Unusual record and whatnot. Having established that relationship with those guys and being intimately involved in the production and recording and conception of that Ancient Medicine, the second record uh, for Arista, uh, it just, man, I just realized, hey, that's where the action is and I want to be a part of that. Because it was, you know, Mitch, at that time, it was just the writing was kind of on the wall that there were less and less tours going out. And the ones that were going out were already, the, the lineup was was predetermined months ago. 
So if if you were just hearing about it, you were already too late. And I just knew that I needed to transition from just being a, a you know a drummer for hire, a sideman, to being involved in the whole shebang. And and we we love the whole shebang. So so what did you learn making those records as you were learning to be you know a, a drummer for hire and you're, and you're seeing it going? What are some of the first production? values that were taught to you that you went, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, that's terrible. I'm going to make sure if I do this, I'm not doing that. Well, you know, at that point, there wasn't this, the, the structured songwriting that there soon after became such a, a model, you know, the A, B, A, B, C, you know, the kind of abacab system of writing songs. It was still pretty much you know, a frontier, especially Baby Grand being, you know, progressive. Uh, there were, for instance, on the second record, I had recorded the first record um, just before I left to go on tour with Nona Hendrix. We were opening for Peter Gabriel's first European tour in 77. But when I came back, that's when I joined Baby Grand. But just before I left for that tour, I actually played drums on the single, Bring Me Your Broken Heart. I overdubbed drums on um, Alan Schwartzberg's track. So that was a baptism by fire. So I, I, I thought, you know, they had already done that record, but I was signed on with Carmine Rose, the uh, bass player, to be the rhythm system for the second record and thereafter. And when I, one thing that there was only eight songs on Ancient Medicine, the record that uh, we, and two of them were instrumental. And so go and listen to it. It's it's a very progressive, very musical record. And the lyrics, the way that the storylines, and it was more like uh, they were regarded as the heir apparent to Steely Dan on the East. Very intellectual, though. Uh, Eric and Rob and the senior David Kagan had all graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. You know, U of Penn. It was an Ivy League school. And and Carmine and I had definitely not graduated arguing. So there was a there was a real, real mixing of cultures and intellect. I learned from Rick Chertoff, the producer, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Whitman, William Whitman. He was the the engineer. That was one of his first records. And I tell you, the the attention to detail, layering of vocals. At that time, we were actually cutting the rhythm tracks as a, a unit. We cut them live, and there was no click track at that point either. But, you know, you learned all sorts of stuff like, uh, you know, uh, reverse tape effects, uh, pre-delay on reverbs. You know, at that point, though, there really wasn't a lot of uh, polyphonic synthesizers and whatnot. It was really in the infancy at, at that at that stage, but there was a lot of layering of acoustic guitars, what they called Nashville tuning, to where you actually only use unwound strings on the entire guitar, and it makes it sound it has a, a pull to it. Uh, just a lot of it's very speed, you know, on the uh, the tape machines on the multi track. So I was, you know, I was learning about all of that stuff. And this was back when it was all, you know, two-inch tape. We weren't even using two machines or three machines as became, you know, so popular later. So it was very experimental. And that was, we recorded that in 78. So that was 
you know, we were definitely pushing the boundaries. And that record sounds completely different from the first record, which was more kind of soft rock and, and pop oriented. But that that definitely whetted my appetite majorly, you know. Yeah, and and just to, just to let you know, every so often you you seem to be cutting out. So I don't know if we can get into a nice stable place, but it it, it cuts out every every so often. You know what? Let me uh, let me plug in my wired headphones. See okay. if that's better for you. Yeah, because hold on, it, it just does. a second. Now back to rock talk with Mitch Lafon. I'll 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 take up with it here. You were you were talking about uh, you mentioned Alan Schwartzberg, by the way, who yes. an incredible drummer, a friend of mine. He, he of course played on a couple of Kiss records, and mm-hmm. uh, folks do not know this, but he went in on some of the post you missed Jimi Hendrix stuff and fixed yes. the Mitch Mitchell parts and stuff. And people are like, oh, that's right. Yes, mm-hmm. he also got me in trouble with Cheap Trick years ago. <laughs> Which is, which oh really? Is, yeah, uh, and I'll tell you, I'll tell this story quickly on air, and then we'll get to some of the albums you've worked on. But sure. um, I did an interview with Alan, and he said that uh, he went in on a Cheap Trick song called, I think, Saturday at Midnight, like an extended club mix, a twelve-inch mix or whatever, and they mm-hmm. wanted some extra drums and some extra things. And he said that he went in and cut those, and that was it. And the interview appeared. And then uh, Cheap Tricks management said, you pull that interview down. I go, well, I'm not pulling it down. I mean, that's what he said. Uh, you know, call him. And then uh, Bunny Carlos called and said, well, you'll oh, never no. you'll never cover Cheap Trick ever again. You're, you're banned for life. And it's just like, okay, but you're still talking to the wrong person. I'm a reporter, and this is what somebody told me. And that's, that's, right. that, that's their recollection. So, you know, come on air and say, well, and refute it. Or call Alan and say, hey, Alan, you need to phone Mitch back and say that. The-. Anyway, it was silly. Well, Mitch, my, my situation with Alan Schwartzberg was identical. I mean, the, the, the track that he played on was great. And that was on the album. But Rick wanted something for the single that had more fills, just a different kind of sense of urgency. But it wasn't that what he played was, you know, inferior or inadequate. I mean, he's, you know, his his reputation is precedes him. So he's impeccable. But that was the producer's call. And, and I said, sure. So, you know, yeah, I know happens. what you're talking about. Though. It happens. It happens. People get all all cranky, you know. Anyway. Uh, let us get over to a Night Ranger here. There's so many great albums. Uh, I do want to talk Arcade because there's, there's certain stuff going on there. But, mm-hmm. but let's get to Feeding Off the Mojo by Night Ranger. It comes out in 1995. So it was in that period where many of those bands, those bands from the 80s, those melodic rock bands from the 80s mm-hmm. were sort of out on a ledge and, and one stepped the wrong way and they were falling off. And of course... Jack Blades is not involved. Talk to me a little bit about that one and and working since you're a drummer, working with a drummer like Kelly Keegy because that son of a gun can play. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so yeah. so let, let's talk about put, putting this together. You know, they're going in here and they're recording this, and you as a producer, what were you trying to capture? What was sort of the mission to to create a classic sounding night ranger thing to make it a new night ranger talking about sort of those sessions and working with with brad and 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 kelly 
and Gary. Well, I'll try. I'll try and keep it short because it is. It was. Um, it was a long, drawn out process. But that was, if you recall, that was the period right after Kurt Cobain had died, and uh, that was also, you know, Allison Chain, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. That was, you know, it was very obvious that things. That, that, that there was a changing of the guard, and I had seen those those type of things happen before. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a problem with any of that. I, I'd seen punk when I was in London uh, doing the Peter Gabriel uh, opening slot with Nona. I, I was there at the marquee and I saw punk, you know, coming in and, you know, turning the tables over. So, you know, that's the way that, that it goes in the music industry. So when it came to Night Ranger, Kelly, Kelly Keegan and Gary Moon were not really that interested in making a quote unquote night ranger record because it Jack wasn't in it. Jeff wasn't in it. Uh, Fitz or who else had been in night ranger towards the end. And also he was out doing damn Yankees and doing great business with Tommy Shaw and Ted Nugent. So there wasn't really any gnashing of teeth, you know, like, ah, Jack said this, and did you hear that? Oh, you're such an asshole. Not bad at all. But they were out touring. You know, they're working musicians. They, that's what they do. And my job was to go in and for just for, you know, for people's information, I don't go in trying to make a David Prater record. That, I'm not that kind of guy. You know, people could say that, well, that's, you know, that's what Mutt Lang is or Todd Rundgren is. I try and go in and be honest. You know, if the musicians, I let them tell me what they are trying to express and not literally, you know, uh, verbally tell me. I, I, I observe what they're doing musically and get a sense of what it is they're trying to say. Now, Don, Don Grierson had been the head of A&R at Epic, and him and I were very close. And when he left Epic and formed Drive Entertainment in Los Angeles, which was the label that he signed Night Ranger to do feeding off the mojo on, you know, he was, I mean, he was the guy that was behind Cheap Trick, Hard, Bad English, you know, the list goes on and on. You know, he was a legend. So he was very, very, very emphatic about material song 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 so that was just inculcated into my frontal cortex but i'll tell you that the guys really the music was very kind of moody and introspective it was not like you know rocking in america and you know some of the things that they did which was all great but that wasn't where they were man not at all and if someone was expecting that uh, you know, I, they they were certainly not interested in trying to revisit that because there was no market for it, none at all. I mean, that came much later. You know, the whole thing that started to happen in the uh, 2006, seven, and eight, where some of the bands were out there, and you know, Rocklahoma was doing a big thing, bringing all these bands out from kind of hibernation. That was ten years away, if not more. So really, these guys were kind of orphan Mitch, and I, my loyalties were with them because I knew Brad and Jack from the Bay Area when Jack was in Rampart, and also when they did Rubicon. So I knew about these guys, and I wanted to be faithful to it. And also, you have to remember, Gary Moon was a force of nature, man. He was a beast. 
he's a, a great player, a great singer, and and unbelievably creative. And and there was at one point feeding off the mojo, the actual title track. I had lent them a little four track uh, Tascam quarter studio. At one point, they were staying in a in a hotel on IH thirty five north of Austin. And they were like, hey, man, we got nothing to do. You got anything we can record on? And I said, well, sure, here, take this. And, you know, gave them a, a mic and a few things. Man, I came back a day or two later, and that song, Feeding Off the Mojo, uh, they had, you know, Gary had pretty much scripted it all out, and him and Kelly had worked on it. And so, you know, Gary was really a driving force in that record uh, as far as direction and songwriting. But it wasn't, Mitch, it wasn't anything covert or over. He wasn't trying to, you know, bump uh, the Night Ranger brand and call it uh, Night Ranger featuring Gary Moon. It wasn't anything like that at all. But it was a it was a completely different record than anything that they had done, kind of like the one that uh, Motley Crue did with John Karate. That was different than many of the other uh, Motley Crue records. Well, that's kind of how I looked at it feeding off the mojo it was it was different, but I, looking back at it, I'm proud of it. I did what I could, given the circumstances, because we didn't have you know a quarter of a million dollar buck to do that. No, and we were we and we finally finished it in a townhouse that I found in the classification of the Austin American Statesman. Uh, because at that point, I told Don, I said, man, if you guys will just put out for us to camp out in the townhouse we can rent by the month i'll set up in there and we'll record this dadgum thing and so i hope i no oh, it, 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 it turned it turned out great you know I, there, there's songs on there like uh, precious time and uh, mm-hmm. tell me i'm wrong which i love now now brad is currently here and we're, we're talking june 2019 is currently in the studio with gary making a new no, not a new Night Ranger, but a new uh, Brad Gillis solo mm-hmm. album. And he sent me 13 tracks now. Uh, folks who have been listening to me have, have heard me going from 10 to 11 to 12. But I'm at 13, and, and it sounds it sounds great. Now, uh, before we, 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 we run out of time here, because I, I do have an interview with Gary Phil, who used to yeah. play with Boston and Sammy Hagar, and mm-hmm. so I got that coming up. But I, I want to get over to this arcade album. He had a chance to work uh-huh. with Stephen Piercy. And Fred mm-hmm. Corey, and of course Frankie. We we love mm-hmm. Frankie. Oh um, man, he was awesome. Frankie's great. I mean, he looks like Joe yeah. Perry and sounds like Joe Perry. Um, but but talk to me about this arcade album because Rat is one of these bands that have had their ups and their downs and their lefts and their rights. And you y- you know what was that atmosphere in the studio like because now we're going we're not calling it a Stephen Piercy solo album but it's clearly a Stephen Piercy solo album and the Rat Guys and of course the Times and and the Nirvana and what was that like were, were you trying to make a rock record were you trying to make a rat record were you what what was going on and and by the way that arcade album with uh, nothing to lose and uh, never going home and and uh, dancing with angels i mean my lord or as Artie lang would say maron what a great what a great <laughs> right what a great album um but, but what what was that like working with steven at that time and under all those pressures and uh, you know well it, let me just remind you of something that was right after the riots 
it was a very tense time in Los Angeles. Um, there was a lot of tension throughout the whole city. And when I came in, it was, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get a cell phone because they had to, you know, kind of discontinue all new accounts because so many of the cell phone stores and whatnot had had all their inventory stolen. So there was a lot of, you know, uh, riffraff going on with falsifying accounts. And, you know, so that was weird. You know, uh, so that was that made communicating a little bit different when I needed to get in touch with people and I'd be driving around and whatnot or, or anywhere for that matter. So that was that was troubling, just the tension that was in the air. And also working with Steve, I have to tell you, I loved Steve. I didn't have the problems that everyone told me, oh, you're working with Steve Ferris. You was an asshole. No, he was a pro. He really was. He. He just wanted to make a good record, and I thought the material was outstanding. You know, I, in order to do the record, rather than go in and do it all in a rehearsal room, and me trying to delegate and strong-arm people into doing what I want them to do, Steve and I, I got myself a, um, a 1214 Akai uh, multi-track, and we did all the pre-production in his um, kind of garage work studio and it and it and, and once i got that machine we got all the songs mapped out and it was going great uh he hadn't sung in a lot of time his voice was very very rough but what i did i said steve just give me i don't care just see one word at a time i will piece it together don't worry about it i'm not going to make you go out there and sing it start to finish you know so I, so he, you know, I enlisted his trust straight away that I was going to, you know, protect what he was doing and his, you know, that, that, uh, that the quality of his voice, that was so, you know, so much of an imprint on, on what he does musically and his brand, so to speak. The material was great. Fred played great. The musicianship, musicianship was awesome. Donnie Syracuse was great. I think it was Mike Andrews. Wasn't that the bass player's name? It's been so long ago. It was. Uh, and then Frank, yeah, Frankie came in at the end. And what I, on that one, Steve and I had listened to a lot of early Alex Cooper. And uh, there was a guy named Johnny Angel that had kind of gotten all of the pre-production prior to my coming in. He had worked on a lot of it, but he wasn't able to remain through the record. So we need some. We needed somebody that could really handle the solos. And towards the end, that's when Frankie just kind of walked in, and Steve said, "Well, here's a guy that's going to play." And all I had to do is just arm the track and record and let him go at it, man. And it was, you know, I mean, it was very fiery and passionate. So we recorded. One thing that we did that was really different is I, I at that time I was kind of tired of just having a guy go out there with a Les Paul or sort of a hot rotted strat. I actually I wanted to have a telecasters and Rickenbackers and different guitars. Uh, if you listen to a lot of the intros of those songs, those are not, you know, um state of the art, you know, Les Pauls that you would typically see with some of these guys or the strats there was a lot of very different guitars and also with the bass that was mike through a basement i used to have a hot rodded basement amplifier so there's that now 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 
I love that kind of Chris Squire, John Entwistle bass sound. I mean, I can just I can just listen to bass and drums all day and be satisfied. So I I was delighted with it, but towards the end, things became so tense that I just wasn't able to stay and actually mix the record. But unfortunately, I, you know, I think if people heard it the way that I heard it before I left, they'd be blown away. I mean, it was incredible. We recorded at the enterprise out there on uh, Magnolia Boulevard in Burbank and the machines, the boards, everything was was impeccable. The maintenance and everything worked. And I had Brian Maloof fit because I wasn't going to be able to stay. And and he did the best that he could could uh, do given the circumstances. But I thought Steve sang great. Uh, Frankie played good. Fred played good. But I'll tell you, it's a weird feeling. I there was a sense, Mitch, when I was making that record. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I had to ask myself, why are we even bothering? You know, uh, because obviously hip hop and NW and public enemy, all that stuff was just blowing up. Uh, there was a lot of racial strife at that time. And for white guys playing rock and roll and thinking that they were going to make much of a difference based upon what had already happened for the previous 10, 15 years, it kind of seemed pointless at that point, but that did not discourage me from trying as hard as I could to make the best record I could. And I'm proud of it. I feel like you, I can listen to that and, and enjoy it. You know, uh, like I told you, it's not a short answer. <laughs> no, no, it's a great one. And, um, I'm going to move over here quickly to uh, mm -hmm. to Firehouse. Sure. You did uh, two Firehouse albums, the very first one, and then Hold Your Fire in 92. Now, these are, of course, both before um, Arcade, but, but talk to me about working with a new band. Because when you have an entity like Stephen Piercy, who's been through it, you know, he knows what he's doing in the studio. When you're dealing with Brad Gillis and Kelly Keege, they, they've been there. They they know what to do and how to expect it. But what was yep. it like working with, with the rookies, you know, with Bill Leverty as a rookie comes in now, of course, that first record, four singles, right? Don't Treat Me Bad. Yeah. All She Wrote, yep. Shake and Tumble, and of course, their signature, their signature track, yep. Love of a Lifetime. I mean... Did they come to you with these songs all done and all you had to do was play record? Or how much input did you have with the band into crafting them into what they became? Because here we are in 2019, and when you go to a Firehouse show and they pull out any one of those four songs, that's when the crowd goes the craziest. Well, I'll give you two answers. First of all, no. The songs uh, had bore very little resemblance to those. They had done them with... Uh, and when they were called White Heat and Dana Strum had recorded most of those, but they were done with the drum machine. They overdubbed cymbals and, and it just, it, you know, and I, I have a great deal of respect for Dana and his work, but this was like 89, 90. And there, there wasn't a groove. You know, one thing I remember saying to the guys, I said, look, man, I want to walk into a strip club and I, I'm going to see some ridiculously hot babe making the club going crazy, dancing to your music, because that's what you're trying to do. And I went out and worked a lot with Michael Foster to make him uh, propel, excuse me, to propel 
to give more propulsion to the track, like, you know, I wanted a real, real definitive, you know, power rock drum approach to it, almost to the point of it being like an R&B type drum track with big ass sounds. And so once we kind of got going down that road, you know, it just, it got better and it got better. And I worked, I worked just extremely closely with Michael uh, on every song and every fill, you know, what can I tell you? I mean, my, my mission at that point was making Def Leppard hysteria at Sam's club prices. You know, they, that's what everybody wanted. They wanted that type of sound and success, but they didn't want to have to pay the kind of money that Mutt and, um, oh, what was that guy, that great engineer he worked with, he, Mike Shipley. Um, so, you know, that was my mission, and it was a tall order, but I did everything that I could. But let me tell you something. Bill and C were, were and are brilliant guys. They're very, very intelligent, very knowledgeable, very business savvy. They knew everything about copyright, song authorship, you know, breakdown of royalties. I mean, they, they had done their homework. And, you know, Perry was a great bass player and a great singer. And Mike was a great singer as well. To be honest with you, they all could sing very well. So the, my job at that point was just to give the, the record some, some torque, you know, to give it a way of just, you know, kind of rolling over anybody that was in its way. I wanted that record to come out of the gate snarling and spitting and hissing. And hopefully I did. But um, anyway, that's, that was the first record. When I did the second record, when they came in, I had to do very little. They had kind of learned all of that and had, had evidently had reflected on for the previous year. And when we went in to do the second one, I really didn't have to do much of anything, you know, just, just kind of production techniques, but nothing like the first one. They, they, they learned their craft and they're still amazing at what they do you know I've, I've had a chance to to become friends with them and hang out at shows and what i've noticed compared to some other bands is that when you're backstage with firehouse there's no drama there's no craziness it's they come in i mean they are literally going to the office they are going to work there there's no we're going to drink till we can't remember our name there's no it's it's this is our set time. This is what we're going to play. It, it's methodical. It's well thought out. And, and and that's not to say that it's not fun or it's, it's just it's a machine and they've got it down pat. And you've got to respect that's that. It. It's, it's great. That's it. It's great. Now, right. I mean, it was all business with those guys, man. Yeah. And, and they, they keep up that mentality to this day. And that's why they're still around. One of the reasons why they're still around now. Just before we, we, we wrap up here, um, quickly, you, you had a chance to work with Dream Theater on a couple of albums, including uh, mm-hmm. A Change of Seasons and uh, mm-hmm. Images and Words. Yes. So so you do the hard rock stuff with Arcade, and you do the hard rock stuff with Brad Gillis and his and his guitar wailing, and, and, and you do Firehouse, which of course is, is another, uh, do we want to call them a party band? But I mean, it, it's it's just fun music. What was it like working with Dream Theater? Very cerebral, very progressive. How was that as a producer to sort of get into that headspace where it's not just here's a guitar and a drum, but there's all kinds of stuff going on and there's all kinds of lyrics that are deeper and 
and it's just a different sound. What, what was it like to work, especially on the early days of Dream Theater, where you're sort of helping them create what would become their classic sound? Well, my role that one was really completely different than any other record that I had done up to that point, but it wasn't hard for me because I came from fusion. Ma Vishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, Todd Rundgren's Utopia, Frank Zappa, Live at the Roxy. You know, I came from playing different time signatures and drum pyrotechnics. You know, I was a drummer in Santana. So, you know, that was really kind of like my mother's milk. And I knew going into that, Mitch, that that was going to be, if I pulled it off, was going to be probably my crowning achievement. And so I damn sure better well pay attention and stay, you know, keep my finger on the trigger. Because, no, I wasn't, you know, I just came in there with a completely different mindset. Almost to the point at times I felt like I had already made the record before I started. Uh, it was just a, it was a, it was a unusually creative, but streamlined feeling. I mean, I, I felt so focused on what they were doing. And also I knew that I would never have an opportunity to work with five guys that individually did what they were required to do as well as they did it. Uh, I mean, it was a super group and, you know, I was, I, 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 there was no way I was going to be denied at that point. It was like I had the ball, you know, on the three yard line and, you know, I was going to, I was going to get it into the end zone one way or the other. And I also felt that I had to make sure that nothing got in the way of, of being able to finish and bring the home rec- bring the record home when I mixed it. So I, I just couldn't allow anybody in there. It was just too difficult. Some of the songs were 10, 11 minutes long. You know, do you know how long it takes to do an 11th minute rough mix? It takes 11 minutes. You may have to do three rough mixes to get an idea of where you're going. So, there, you know, when you're doing it all with, you know, recall and, and uh, doing a whole lot of automation. And it was, and this was before computers. I mean, this was before MIDI and uh, Pro Tools. I mean, there was no digital recording at that point. And so we we finished it December 11th on uh, in 1991. And so it was to do that record was, you know, it was, it was like making a movie. Technologically, it was it was very advanced for the time. And I'm, I'm I couldn't be prouder of. Of, of what I was able to do for the guys. And, you know, I think that that, you know, they had done a record before on mechanic. And when I listened to it, it doesn't sound anything like the, the potential that those had. And I felt that they were for, very fortunate to even have a chance, you know, because most people, once they're orphaned after being on a label and being dropped, that's it. But they got picked up. And, you know, I, I, I I was very involved. I wasn't going to let that one slip through the crack because that was, well, first of all, I love the music. I love the songs. I mean, golly, when you listen to the, you know, Pull Me Under and the Metropolis and Under a Glass Moon. And I'm also, um, oh, I can't even remember the, the, the piano concerto type of thing. Uh, 
it's just a piano and Kevin singing. Is, is that the, the uh, a change of seasons? No, no. no that, this uh, is all this is all images and words. Images no, and words. All right, well, let me see. We've got yeah. uh, Pull Me Under, Another Day, Take the Time Surrounded, Metropolis Part 1, Under a Glass Moon, Wait for Sleep and Learning to Live. Wait for Sleep. There Wait you go. For sleep That's the sleep. one. Yeah. Now, I want to see somebody pull that off. I mean, we rented a seven-foot grand piano, and, you know, that was expensive. And we had to have it tuned. And I'm like, I just, you know, just midi it up. No, you know, they, he wanted a grand and he was right. And I was wrong. I mean, cause it sounds so elegant and exquisite. And just to hear that, when's the last time you heard a record that had that much sophistication and elegance to it, you know, and was still progressive. I'm proud of that. You know, I'm proud of, of what Kevin Moore and, um, and James Labrie were able to, well, I called him James Labrie at the time. It was Kevin Labrie. His name was originally Kevin, but there were two Kevins in the group. So they said, okay, now you're James. So anyway, uh, I worked very, very, very closely with James because there were certain artifacts in his voice that if you weren't careful, I knew that they would be offensive to some people. Uh, certain vowel sounds that he would have a tendency to automatically gravitate towards. And I said, man, you know, I, we need to look at that. You know, uh, I think that could be a problem and, and that I, I don't want you to have that problem. And if we're working together, so I've worked with him very closely on enunciation. And if you listen to subsequent records, you'll notice that there hasn't been anything that he sounded like singing in that way. So, you know, I worked hard on that. Change of Seasons is a whole different animal. That was a different dream theater at that point. It really was. And and I don't want to say my claim to fame with dream theater is, but uh, my buddy uh, Mitch Joel actually introduced Kevin or now James uh, to the band or helped them mm -hmm. when they were searching. So that, that there you go. That, that was the exciting thing. Now, I will remind folks that you can check, uh, check out David on uh, Facebook at uh, facebook.com david prater and and it actually it says producer instead of producer <laughs> have you Where noticed is that yeah no. on, on, the, on the official webpage it, it's a oh, forward slash david man. prater producer there's, there's missing the r but you're gonna have to you're sort kidding. of i got to get on dan about that yeah golly. dan is my media strategist and he, i know oh, dan yeah. and, and the funny thing is is <laughs> It's it's hard once you've made a page to go make those those corrections. So you're sort of going to have to live with producer. Anyway, for now, folks, <laughs> mistake or not, okay. just go go look. In, in fact, the, think of it as a um, podcaster, like a, a pod user. So, but, yeah, uh, there you but go. Th there That's you it. go. There That's you it. go. Excellent. But uh, absolute pleasure. Now, I, I do wish we could have gone longer, but I do have Gary Phil of. Um, Boston and Sammy Hagar fame coming right up, folks. And uh, David, an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm glad we got to, to get inside because, you know, a lot of people sort of ignore uh, the arcade album and ignore feeding uh, feeding off the mojo. Uh -huh. and, and, and we forget that Firehouse's first album had these gigantic songs, it was number 21, uh, on the uh, Billboard 200. I mean, it was it was a ma and you created a a massive sound. Of course, along with well, CJ know, and and, a, and a love of a lifetime was top five. I mean, the only people in front of us were like Mariah Carey, Garth Brooks, Boys to Men, and Whitney. I think. 
you know, that was an achievement to be on the on the big singles charts in a rock band at that time. It was just very unusual. I was so proud of that. Absolutely. First of all, it was it was epic at that time because rock was I don't want to say dead, but it certainly was passe uh, and it was a debut. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is when the chart mattered. In 2019, when you say you have a number five single, you go, Wow, you I have sold. no idea what that means. Well, right. It means no you, it, it means, means it means twelve teenagers streamed it, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. but but in nineteen ninety one it meant a lot of people and a lot of radio stations and a lot of folks and you know so so you know, good stuff. Uh David, as we say in Montreal in Montreal, merci, thank you. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I hope that I didn't ramble on too much, but I've Nope. Tried to be informative. (laughs) Absolutely were. Hold on a second there. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.